Glad you're in chapel today. It truly does seem like it's the little things that make big differences uh, in the world. And Julie's here, and she's going to share with us a little bit about what International Justice Mission is doing on our campus and a way that you can be involved even today. So share with us. Hey, guys. My name is Julie, and I'm a sophomore here at Baylor. I'm also um, the public relations officer of International Justice Mission Baylor Chapter. Um, International Justice Mission is a nonprofit organization based out of Washington, D.C. that fights to end human rights violations all across the world. Um, something that we do here at Baylor, um, we are big on raising funds, awareness, and prayer. And so one way that you can help this week is in the sub, we will be selling fair trade chocolate like the video um, just kind of described. Um, from 10 to 2 every day in the sub lobby, kind of where you get your food area. Um, and it's $3 a bar, and it's organic, and it's fair trade. Um, 90% of commercial chocolate is grown by slaves. Um, I know a lot of times when you think of slavery, you don't think of something that's going on right now. You think of, like, the transatlantic slave trade. But um, slavery is alive and well, and there are many people um, in the world that live um, enslaved. And so one way to help um, end that is by boycotting um, items that are sold, um, that are made by slaves, and buying fair trade certified. So if you want to learn more about that, stop by. You don't even have to buy chocolate. You can just come talk to us, but um, we'd love to talk to you, and thanks. Thanks. A couple of important events going on on our campus, and Ben's going to come out and share with us a little bit about things that you should be involved in. And so listen intently as Ben shares with us. Hey, what's up? Uh, my name is Ben Newcomb, and I'm a member of uh, the Alpha Tau Mega Fraternity here on campus. And one of the huge philanthropy events that we put on every fall is called uh, ATO Bed Races. And this year, we're in conjunction with Chi Omega for the Chi o Chili Cook-Off. Now, if you guys don't know what bed races are, it's teams of five. It can be guys and girls, both compete. Uh, we've rigged up these hospital beds with these big old mag wheels, and we have you guys race them down Fountain Mall with one person sitting on top. And it's a whole lot of fun. Uh, basically, you guys are free to register. It's, you don't have to pay anything for the bed races. Uh, if you want to get involved with the chili cook-off, it's $25 for a team. And you're more than welcome to come out to the event. Everything's going to be this Friday, the 13th. Bed races are starting at 4.30, and the chili cook-off is starting at 5 o'clock. And we'll be selling T-shirts in the sub. And the big point is everything goes to our Make-A-Wish Foundation. So come out, buy T-shirts, support us, and support the kids. Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. I was a judge once for the, for the chili cook-off. And did you know they give prizes for the person who makes the hottest chili? And I had to eat the, the hot chili? Good Lord. You guys have an incredible ability to make ridiculously hot chili that no human should ever consume. This past week, the nation was faced with a tragedy and that tragedy took place not very far from here in Fort Hood. And we thought that it would only be appropriate for us together as the chapel audience to, to spend some time this morning, just a few short minutes praying together. And so I, I'm just going to ask you to do this. I'm going to guide us in a little bit of prayer together. I'm going to ask you to silently there in your seat to voice prayers as I guide you through some of these. Because sometimes the only response we have is to say, God, be with them. We're not naive enough as to think that 
some of you weren't affected by this tragedy. And so as you pray for others, also remember that there are students here in our very university who have been affected by this. So let's pray together this morning. Show us your mercy, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Clothe us with righteousness and let us sing. Give us peace, O Lord, and give peace to the world. And bring comfort now to those who have family members who were killed at Fort Hood this past week. Lord, there were so many killed and there were so many family who were affected. We spend some time praying for those now. We pray for comfort. We pray for peace. Lord, we also ask that you grant peace and grant healing to those who are recovering in the hospital. Some are hanging on to their very lives while others are counting down the days till they get to go home. God, we pray for those who are recovering. We pray for healing. ask for peace. We ask for courage, for wisdom, for those who work at Fort Hood, for that personnel, those personnel who must show up today and tomorrow and every day after and put the pieces back together again. We pray for them now, even as they are at their places of work. Give them peace. Show us your mercy, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Clothe us with your righteousness. Let us sing. Give peace, O Lord, to all the world. Give peace to us. For only in you do we find wholeness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying for them. I hope that as you watch the news and hear reports from as they continue to roll out from the tragedy at Fort Hood that you'll continue to pray to our God as well. Excited to introduce you today to our chapel guest. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. And I have to tell you that I have been to, to many conferences over the past few years, whether it be a conference designed for youth, for college students, or maybe just a conference designed uh, to talk about the church and the ever-changing role of the church. And always on the bill for those conferences is Phyllis Tickle. And I've actually have several CDs in my office um, where Phyllis has spoken, and I get to listen to her time and time again. It probably makes her very nervous that we get to listen to her recorded voice over and over. 
I want you to know that she's an author of over two dozen books. Have you, have you ever written a book? Some of you may have. I have not, but I've often thought it would be fun to sit down and write a book. She's written over two dozen of them. I can't even wrap my mind around that, but the most recent of which are The Great Emergence. She also wrote a book entitled How Christianity is Changing and Why. Doesn't that just sound intriguing? She also wrote a book called The Words of Jesus. For those of you who are Episcopalian, she is a lay and Eucharist minister and lector in the Episcopal Church. So we are proud and honored to have to the chapel stage this morning, and I hope you will give a warm welcome to Phyllis Tickle. Last time. Good morning to all of you. It's nice to be here. It's good to see all of you uh, and to be able to spend some time with you. As Ryan just said, uh, my focus right now uh, as a professional religionist uh, is primarily on emergence Christianity. That's not exactly what we're going to talk about this morning, but I do need to say a word about what emergence Christianity is. Um, as if you were listening to what he said, there's a thing going on called the great emergence. Um, you may not have heard of it, but you're living through it. The great emergence, rather like the Reformation, is a total change in how the Western world does business. Um, it's a total change sociologically, culturally, intellectually, economically, politically, and it's showing up in your lives right now. For instance, in the current economic crisis, um, when economists talk about what we're going through right now, they talk about it mergenomics, uh, to use their term, which is their way of saying that part of what we're um, going through is the product of pure human greed. There's no question about that. But part of it is also the fact that the markets all over the world have now merged. They have come together. And so when uh, somebody catches a cold, somebody else gets pneumonia as a result. Um, and so the, the, they are also talking about the fact that the uh, World Wide Web has now done things to us very analogous to what the coming of the printing press did 500 years ago. Uh, it has brought us together in ways that make a shrinking world. Uh, and so we're in a globalized state. Um, about a slightly more than half of us no longer live in the same family units that your parents and grandparents lived in. No, a slightly more than half of us no longer live a man, woman, and their children. It's just not true. Um, most of you will at some time in your lives uh, change jobs at least six times. I hate to tell you, but the fact is that if you're in technology right now in any of the technological sciences uh, as you're working through your degree, uh, what you learned in your freshman year will be obsolete by your junior year, and that's got nothing to do with Baylor. That has to do with the fact that that's just how rapidly uh, information is changing. Uh, it's true that there are uh, approximately 20 more uh, 20 times as many words right now in English language as there were in Shakespeare's day, uh, and he did pretty well with what he had. We just have more uh, in which to do business. Uh, we die of information. Do you ever come to the end of the day and just think, I don't want to know another thing? I just absolutely do not want to know another thing. And what do you do? You start twittering about how you don't want to know anymore. You know, it, it's pathetic. Uh, uh, we, we are pitiful. Uh, we, are, we are information junkies just as long as we don't have to do anything with it except just acquire more of it, like squirrels putting it back somewhere, hoping that one day it will make sense. Um, that, that's the great emergence. It's why you are... Blah, blah, blah. Um, it, it's also why you can't talk to your parents in all probability who are... Blah, 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 uh, <laughs> because they've got you. Uh, and, and, and the interesting thing about it demographically from a sociological point of view is that not only do they have you, but they have probably their own parents or older friends who are perfectly cool with it. 
Um, there's an old Carol Burnett joke that kids and their grandparents get along so well because they have a common enemy. Um, and uh, that's where your parents are. Uh, and uh, your grandparents are perfectly all right with what's happening in the great emergence uh, because they're sort of invulnerable now and have greater impunity. And you're good with it because you were born in it and don't know the difference. It's your folks who are stuck in the middle. Uh, who really don't know what either one of you is talking about and wish you'd both shut up uh, and, and let them get on with the business. But the, the great emergence, while it may be a political and economic and cultural and sociological, it's all those things, uh, the thing happening, also has a religious component to it. And the, the truth of the thing is that religion, once it becomes institutionalized, I'm not talking about your private faith, that's a different thing, but institutional religion, once you move from being uh, a private Christian uh, Baptist training or Episcopal training or whatever and go and start talking about the Baptist church or the Episcopal church or the Presbyterian church, you're talking about the institution. The institution um, affects both the society in which it exists and is affected by it. So as a result, the great emergence is affecting Christianity in the same way that Christianity is affecting it in the Western world. So, out of that, we're getting what's called emergence Christianity. The last time we did this, we got the Reformation, and it had the grace to give us Protestantism, which at least had a different name. So we never thought that the Reformation and Protestantism were exactly the same thing. Remember in history class, the Reformation, it gives you the, the rise of capitalism, the birth of the middle class, the coming of the nation-state, and it also throws in Protestantism. Remember that? Well, the great emergence is up here, but emergence Christianity is what's coming out or being formed by it. And emergence Christianity is what I will be talking about tomorrow night, what I spend a good deal of my time talking about. And it's, uh, it's just different. It doesn't like institutions. Uh, you have been exposed already, I understand, to several emergence thinkers and theologians. Uh, and as with the Reformation, the theology uh, coming out of, of emergence thought is monumental and remarkable and I think rather wonderful. I'm not myself an emergence Christian necessarily. I'm probably an Anglo-emergent, uh, which is called a hyphenated. I don't want to give up Anglicanism, but I'm not going to say no to emergence because I believe it to be uh, the next thing that God's doing. There are also, for those of you who want to know, there are hyphenated called meth-emergence, which sounds like a bad drug, and luth-emergence and uh, bapt-emergence and, uh, you know, ad-emergence, anyway. Um, there are all kinds of, of hyphenateds. Um, but, but emergence, uh, as it begins to inform more and more, and about a third of us in this country are now emergence Christians, it begins to express itself in some remarkable theology and also in some remarkable sensibilities. That is to say, just plain emergence Christians like you and me uh, who begin to feel that, that we have lost something and always there is something lost. Uh, that we've lost something over the last 500 years as we intellectualize Christianity because the Reformation, whatever else it did, uh, took, the Reforma took Christianity north. And I don't mean just Geneva and Scotland. It took it north in our heads. And we began to intellectualize Christianity because it needed to be that. It had not had that for 500 years, so it was good. But what's happening now is a, a desire, a strong passion to say, I want more than the intellectualization of my faith. Uh, I want also some of its passion and its emotion. Uh, and part of that finds itself expressed in the emergence kind of cattle call almost of going back to the ancient future. It was Robert Weber, the late Robert Weber, <coughs> who 
<coughs> gave it that term. But what it means is the need on the part, the, the heartfelt need on the part of many emergence Christians to know what it was like to be alive in the first and second and third century. Um, to, to say to themselves, what was it that made people willing to go to the lions? What made it possible to have your head chopped off with equanimity? What made it possible to be burned at the stake? What was it that gave them such confidence? Where is that passion, and why don't I have it now? Now, in pursuit of that, uh, you've, had, you've been exposed, as I said, to several fine emergence theologians. I understand some of you are reading uh, The Orthodox Heretic now in small groups by Pete Rollins. Uh, Pete is probably one of the outstanding young theologians uh, coming out of emergence. I think you've had Greg Boyd here at one point. Uh, Brian McLaurin, who is in many ways uh, the Martin Luther, uh, or what Martin Luther was to the Reformation. Brian McLaurin is indeed uh, to emergence Christianity, and he will be here with you in the spring. Tony Jones, uh, who is emergent, uh, a division of emergence Christianity, has been here and I think is returning. So you're already being uh, well exposed to the, to the seminal thinkers in emergence Christianity. What I want to do this morning is go back to that business of what shaped us. What was it that gave that passion? What was it in the first, second, and third century that made our forebears in the faith so very sure that made them able to, with equanimity, take on the horror uh, of the lions, take on the horror of the Colosseum, of the burning at the stake. What was that? Uh, what shaped them? Those in the third century who died that way had never seen our Lord. They'd never even seen an apostle. They'd never even seen the apostle of an apostle who had seen the Lord. They were three centuries removed. What allowed them? What gave them the scope of discipline? What gave them the character, the spiritual character, to be able to do that. And the answer to that uh, is in many ways that they and our forebears up until about four or 500 years ago kept or, or maintained the seven ancient practices. It used to be called the seven ancient disciplines, and discipline isn't an attractive word to Americans. We live too casually and easily to like the notion. So now it's referred to by the church as the seven ancient practices. But they began with Judaism, they informed Judaism and still do. They informed the early church. Our Lord and the apostles kept those disciplines. They informed the first part of Christian history. Uh, and the time has come, say emergence, to go back to them, or at least to look at them and be aware of what they are and to understand that they are the way in which we are shaped. Spiritual formation is something we talk about a lot nowadays. This is Christian formation. There's nothing wrong with spiritual formation. It's just not the same as Christian formation. And Christian formation, or Abrahamic formation, if you wish, comes out of the use of the seven practices. Now, to talk about them, I need to quickly tell you, briefly tell you a story. It's a story you already know. Uh, it's from the Bible, and it's the 14th chapter of Genesis, if you want to go home and look it up. And the story happens in, in the days when Abram is still Abram. He's not yet Abraham. And Sarai is still Sarai. She's not yet Sarah because the covenant has not been made, and therefore their names have not been changed. Uh, and they have come out of Padan, Iran, and are living in what we now call the Holy Land. And desperate for a son and an heir, Abram has gone ahead and adopted Lot, a nephew who I, whom I suspect he never really liked. Uh, I, I may be reading between the lines, but I think Lot and Abram had a kind of mixed relationship. Nonetheless, uh, he was the only male heir standing, and so Abram took him. Uh, and they got along famously for about two weeks uh, before, best I can tell, uh, before Lot uh, got a little greedy 
uh, and he said, I'm you know, going to be heir to all of this stuff, uh, and I should uh, live well and uh, more easily than I am, and they began to fuss. And Abram finally said, all right, take whatever herd land you want, whatever herd you want, whatever grazing land you want, and go and live wherever you want, and I will go wherever you don't go, as you will remember. And Lot, of course, chose Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, here we've got these fancy cities. They live even better than he lived. Uh, and it was good grazing land around it. So he took himself down near the Dead Sea, right just to the east of the Dead Sea, to Sodom and Gomorrah. There were, by the way, five cities there. We only talk about Sodom and Gomorrah, but there was Ammon, and there was the land of the Zeboims, and there was Bela, which is also called Zoar in the Bible. So there were five cities there at the bay around the Dead Sea, uh, and, and he went to one of them. Abram, having been driven out of that part of the rich part of the Holy Land, went up to the oak trees in Mamram, which we would now call Hebron, south of Jerusalem and to its west. Um, and there he set up his camp, for he was essentially a desert chieftain. That's what he was. Uh, and things went along famously for a while. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah and their three fellow si uh, cities were very, very wealthy for one reason, and that's probably why, part of why they got in trouble, I suspect. When we get very, very wealthy, we tend to begin to um, indulge ourselves too much, and that's what had happened. We've done that in this country, too, to some extent. But anyway, they were very wealthy because they were built around, or they were the guardians of, tar pits. Uh, some translations of the Bible call them bitumen pits, but it doesn't matter which term you use. The point is still the same, that in those days, if you were going to go to sea, and if you were going to eat meat, you had to go to sea, because in addition to goats that you could raise in the desert, there was protein out there. We call it fish. Uh, and the only way to go out there and get it was to be able to go in a boat. And the only way a boat in those days was going to sail and not sink was to have it sealed both inside and outside with tar. And the only tar in the ancient world, so far as we know, was right there at Sodom and Gomorrah and the land of the Zobahims and Abar and, and Bela, which was known as Zoar. Uh, and so they controlled what was the greatest single natural resource uh, in the ancient world, not unlike uh, the fact that we need oil. So the ancient world needed the tar, and the cities were very wealthy. Now, over here still in what we now call Iraq, there was the, the kingdom of the Edomites, uh, of which, the capital of which was Edom. And in Edom, there was a king, Shadar Leomir, and he had three confreres, fellow kings, who more than being kings, really were warlords in every way. And Shadar Leomir, looking over from Edom in Iraq, seeing the trade in the tar, became increasingly greedy and said, huh, I think I can take it. So he got his three fellow kings, and they came out of Iraq and down the east side of the Jordan River, right down to the base of the Dead Sea to the tar fields. And there they engaged the five kings, Bira and Bishar and their three colleagues. They engaged them in war, and Shadar Loemir was victorious. So he says to Bira and Bishar, says Shadar Loemir, I will save your lives. I will spare your lives. I will save your cities. I will leave everything intact. If you understand that I am now your liege lord, that you must pay me a levy every single year, a big part of the proceeds of what you're getting from the tar fields. Bira and Bisher and their three colleagues said, so be it, we will pay the tax. And they did for 12 years, the Bible says. But in the 13th year, Bira said to his four colleagues, no more. We are stronger now than we were. 
we can beat this man, and he's killing us. He's absolutely killing us. And so Bera and Bersha and their three colleagues sent word back to Edom, we will not pay. And nothing happened until the spring of the 14th year when roaring out of the east, here came Shedar Loermer and his three colleagues coming down the east side of the Jordan, heading straight for the Dead Sea and the League of Five Cities. And there they engaged Bira and Birsha and their colleagues in war. They absolutely were victorious, totally. They leveled the walls around the town. They began to take the women and the children out, and they fought so viciously that Bira and Bisha's soldiers were being forced into the tar pits and being burned alive by the heat there. And when that happened, the League of Five Kings surrendered. But Shadar Loermia was a wiser man than he had been 14 years before. And so he burned the cities. He burned all five of them. He took the women and the children and the surviving men, all of the cattle and all of the wealth of the five cities and headed back up the east side of the Jordan River going back home. Except, except the Bible says, there was one young man, probably 12 or 13, too young to fight, old enough to know what was happening, who managed somehow to escape, went round the, the bottom of the Dead Sea, up the western side of the Jordan, straight up to the oak trees at Mamre. And getting there in utter exhaustion, fell down before Abram and said, My Lord Abram, my Lord Abram, Shedar Loermir has come and the cities have fallen, and all is lost. And then he says, and your nephew Lot has been taken prisoner. At that point, the Bible says, Abram had in his employ 318 young men, which is to say a bodyguard, a small army. Abram took those 318 young men and went north almost to Jerusalem and came over to the east side of the Jordan River and there met Shadar Loemir as he came back from the victory over the five kings. They engaged there, and Abram was victorious. He beat Shadar Loemir, sent him home, and took the booty that was there and freed the people of the, of the five cities. Now, in those days it was understood that when one, lord, one warlord rescued another warlord, the booty of the war, all of the money, all of the goods, all of the silks, all of the cattle, all of that was to be divided between the two of them. That is, the rescuing warlord was do his bounty. It just was. That's what he came to for the rescue for. And that transaction was always conducted in the Valley of the Kings or the Valley of the Shabbos, if you want to give it its Hebrew name, which was just south of Jerusalem in a large valley where all the parties would come together and decide who got what. So on the appointed day, from the western side into the bottom or the neck of the valley, here came Abram. And from the eastern side, here came uh, Bera and Bersha and their three colleagues. And they were to enter the valley and meet there and decide who got what. And just as they drew near to the center of the valley, ready to begin their negotiations, there came from the northern end of the valley this great presence, this magnificent presence presence that was so overwhelming that Abram fell down immediately and did obeisance before whatever this was. We don't know the name, the proper name of what came. We know only the title. What came into that valley was the Melchizedek. The Melchizedek who was priest of the Most High God, king of peace, king of Salem, without progeny and without progenitor. 
that is to say, without parents and without offspring, handsome, amazing, sacred, holy, dramatic creature. And when Abram fell down and did obeisance before the Melchizedek, the Melchizedek reached out in time and picked Abram up and brought him up to upright standing. And then looking him dead in the eye, he turned to an acolyte behind him and got a loaf of bread and a cup of wine and brought them over in front. And he fed Abram there with the bread and the wine. And when it was done, giving those things back to the acolyte, the Melchizedek received from Abram 10% of the spoils from Sodom and Gomorrah and their three colleagues and cities. And taking the 10%, he blessed Abram and then disappeared up into the north end of the valley. It's an important story for this reason. Of the seven disciplines, of the seven practices, two are established there. The first is the sacred meal, which you and I still celebrate. Whether we call it communion or the Lord's Supper or the Mass or the Eucharist, it doesn't matter. It would be reenacted on the night before the flight out of Egypt. It would be reenacted in the upper room. It would be reenacted thousands and thousands of times thereafter. Because it was foretold out of Judaism and all through the years of Judaism that when Meshua came, when Messiah came, he would come within the tradition of the Melchizedek, that he too would be without progeny and without progenitor, immaculately conceived and not giving human birth to any other creature. The 110th Psalm is a psalm of praise, for you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The 5th, 6th, and 7th chapter of Hebrews are nothing in the world but a long essay by the writer to those Jews who were converting to Christianity, saying, don't you understand? Our Lord was within the Melchizedek. When our Lord says before Abram was, I am, he's talking about the Melchizedek, the first appearance within the tra- of the tradition within which Meshawood would come. And so it's established there, that sacred meal, that that you and I come to when we do our Christian worship. It began in the Valley of Shabbos. The other thing, of course, is the tithe. Because there for the first time, Abram, our forebear in the faith, paid the first tithe to the priest of God. There are five more. Three of those, of those seven disciplines govern the physical body. Three of them and its product. Three of them are there to tell us that our bodies are our souls and our spirits, that they're inseparable, that you cannot divide them, that we are indeed a unit. And what we do with our bodies affects our souls and our spirits and also what they do affects our bodies. And so we take the product of our physical life and we tithe it. We take the need, our need for food, and we feed it not just the food we need to make it through the day, but also the food we have sacri- that we have offered in sacrifice, that we have received sacramentally, the food of our Lord's body, the food that was offered by the Melchizedek, and we call it the sacred meal. And then the third one that governs the body, we fast. Now, there's one that we don't do very much anymore unless you're emergence. But emergence increasingly are beginning to say, I don't want you to know I'm tithing. Our Lord was very clear. When you tithe, do not let your neighbor know it. Do not let your face show it. Do not broadcast it. When you tithe, you tithe unto your God. And when, uh, when you fast, you fast unto your God. And fasting is, is a way, a simple way of saying to your body, 
we are, we are one. I understand we are one. And let us stop and feel what it is to feel each other and to be grateful to God for the fact that there is food. And so one fasts to the glory of God, one fasts to remember, one fasts in order to discipline the body, to make it understand how important it is that all parts of us go into the kingdom. The other four disciplines govern time, because after you've governed space with the three physical disciplines, you have to govern also time. It's the other dimension in which we live. And the first is the day itself. And the day is disciplined by keeping the divine hours or the daily offices, call them whatever you will, which is to say that Christians used to and now increasingly do stop every three hours, six in the morning, nine in the morning, 12 at lunch, three in the afternoon, sundown, and before going to bed, and stop wherever they are in whatever time zone you're in at the moment. And you say, if nothing else, the Lord's Prayer. It's called praying with the church as opposed to praying in the church. That is to say, when you enter that holy time, that moment or two of the, every three hours, when you enter that, you enter into sacred space, made sacred by the fact that Christians all over your time zone are stopping right now, and they're saying the prayer together. And so it is that you pray with the church. The second largest use, uh, unit of human time is, of course, the week. The need to keep Shabbos, the need to keep Sabbath. Very hard to do now, especially hard on a college campus. But an emergence would have me say to you, and I hope you will say to each other, God himself stopped on the seventh day and rested. And we are no better and no stronger, Lord knows, than our God. And if every seventh day it's important to stop, to remember, to not work, to set it all aside, and to honor God by keeping it, then it's important to at least try, to try to keep that discipline, to understand what that seventh day is and how it is to be dedicated. The third is the keeping of the liturgical year. You and I are citizens. We have dual citizenship, you and I. We're citizens not only of secular time and space, but we're also citizens of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has a different calendar. Secular life runs by the November, December, January, February, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. That's secular time. Liturgical time, Christian time, relives every single year the Christian story. The liturgical year this year will begin in about two weeks, and it will be the first Sunday of Advent when it starts. And we will spend four weeks waiting for the next liturgical season, which will be Christmastide. And Christmastide will go from the 25th of December to the 6th of January. And on the 6th of January, we change and we celebrate the Epiphany, for many, many days we recognize that Jesus was at that time revealed to the wise men, as, or to, to Gentiles like you and me, as being the Son of God. And we will go from there to ordinary time and from there to Lent when we wait for, for, for 40 days for the coming of Easter and in Eastertide for 50 days as we relive those glorious days and the coming of Pentecost and we start all over again for Pentecost then eventually gives rise once more to Advent. What are we doing? We are reliving in liturgical time the whole of our story every single year. And the seventh discipline disciplines the time of a life. That is, it's the largest unit in human time, your life. And it says that at one point, at some point, maybe several times, but at least one time in your life as a Christian, at some personal expense and inconvenience, you go somewhere that has been made for, for transcendent, that has been made transcendent, that has been hallowed and made sacred 
by the prayers and the love and the devotion of all of those who have preceded you. Whether that means you go to Canterbury or you go to Rome or you go to Jerusalem or you go to Santiago, doesn't matter. Or whether you go to something simpler, whether you go to St. John the Divine in New York or whether you go to the National Cathedral in Washington, where at least one time you interrupt your whole life and you spend money and energy and passion to go one place where the prayers of those who have been in the faith before you, who have lived it, have suffered for it, have rejoiced in it, and have died for it, have made sacred those walls in that place. And those are the seven. Three that discipline your body, four that discipline or shape or form time itself. We are citizens in two worlds, you and I. We are citizens of a polity, a political unit, whatever, secular time. We are also, however, citizens in the making of the kingdom of God. And from the beginning, our faith and those who passed it to us have understood that these seven make us stronger. They make us able to understand. They make us able to to embrace our faith in the same way that first, second, and third century Christians could embrace theirs. No, we're not asked to go to the lions. No, we're not asked to be beheaded. No, we're not asked to be burned. But we're asked to do almost equally difficult things. We're asked to live in a very secularized and secularizing world, a faith that is completely out of step with what that secular world is about. And the only thing and the only way we can do that is with prayer and with following the customs handed down to us by the tradition of our elders. When you were small... Your parents told you the rules. Your parents shaped you and told you how to become the adult you are now. Now, in young adulthood, you're beginning the real life of the dual citizen. You're beginning the real life of being about to become full-fledged citizens in the kingdom of God, actively shaping it upon earth. These are the parental rules handed down by our ancestors. They may be new to you, strange to you. I hope you'll go home and Google them if they are. I don't think you're going to immediately take on all seven. I'm not that naive. Neither are you. I'm simply saying to you, be aware this is our heritage. And whether you are emergence or not, be aware that at least a third of your fellow North Americans, your fellow Americans, who are Christian and emergence Christians, are saying, yes, I will take these things unto myself, and I will pray God they will shape me as they shaped those who came before me. Will you stand with me and let's have a benediction. Oh, Holy Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, your only Son, praying your guidance, your blessing, your care upon us. Help us, Lord, to accept those disciplines and those practices that will most shape us, Help us to assume those responsibilities and those burdens and make of every one of us sound and strong and good citizens of the kingdom of God. And I pray also, Lord, for your blessing upon these young people as they go forth to enter into life, servants of Jesus Christ, lovers of Jesus Christ, children of your hand. May there be great blessing upon them and upon what they do here and hereafter. In Christ's name, amen. Go in peace to know and serve the Lord.